Ladies, gentlemen, I'm actually going to clear this up once and for all. There are only two ways that six-year-olds can become millionaires. I don't care what newspapers or reality TV or your local phonograph service. Phonograph service? Phonograph service. And I, the words came from my mouth. They came tumbling out like large rivulets of gravy from someone's chin. I was going to say someone fat, but that's mean. Thin people eat gravy, too. Don't believe the propaganda. You don't think Calista Flockhart pours some gravy down her gullet every once in a while? She's human, like we all are. Unless we happen to have android hearts. Which is uh, rapidly becoming the case with a lot of people. Anyway, there are only two ways that six-year-olds can become millionaires. I'm not going to say this again. There are only two ways six-year-olds can become millionaires. I said it again. It's either by becoming very famous child actors, like uh, your Haley Joel Osments, your Jackie Coopers, your, uh, I don't know, Glick Muffdagens. Glick Muffdagen. The 1920s Moppet who starred in such silent laughers as Here Comes the Train Station and, of course, his most famous work. I just fell on a spike, which was a little gruesome. Uh, that one never... I said it was his biggest hit, and yet it never got released. Uh, it got banned. Widely. Wildly, even. It got banned wildly and widely. Um, for obvious reasons. Look, even in 2011, no child should be depicted falling onto a spike. But in 1923, it was super extra verboten. Anyway, having said that, okay, child stars. And then, if you are a child who gets his arm, his or her arm lopped off by a millionaire, only then... In those two instances, child stardom, having your arm chopped off by a millionaire who has to give you a large settlement because it's not like you broke your leg, not like you were skateboarding in the you know, millionaire roller rink, uh, which you should not be skateboarding in, uh, millionaire or otherwise. It's a roller rink. Those last two words should be a little clue being emitted into your six-year-old head that skateboarding's not allowed. But in any case, it's not like you're doing that and then you get uh, slammed into by an Oldsmobile or it's a rather odd choice for a millionaire car, by the way, but uh, a Cadillac, a uh, Mercedes-Benz, Rolls-Royce. Um, it's, it's not, uh, it's a little more extreme than that. I'm trying to imagine a situation where you'd have your arm lopped off by a millionaire. And uh, failing some kind of 127-hour scenario where you and a millionaire were kind of hiking and you fell into a ravine and he got his arm trapped under yours, which was under a boulder, then he had to cut your arm off 
to get to say that doesn't that doesn't really track for me. That doesn't make a lot of sense. But uh, in, in any case, it would really have to be something extreme to have your arm lopped off by a millionaire. An image that I think we can all agree I should be talking about probably for the rest of this episode. Very pleasant. Ah, brother. So anyway, I've got that cleared up. Really wanted to get that off my chest. Now, you you may be wondering why you are hearing this kind of rambling over top the pleasant, soulful, uh, somewhat melancholy bed of uh, the song United by the Music Makers. Uh, A song that uh, I was considering just kind of humming in in lieu of actually playing it, which would go something like... No, no, I, I, no, I, I did not lapse into playing the song there. I was just reproducing with my mouth. That, that may sound impossible to you, but I swear I was just humming it there. I did not rush to the CD changer and put uh, the song on. Uh, I am expecting a call any day now from Rozelle, the human beatbox of The Roots, uh, accusing me of stealing his moonshine glory. Because clearly how else could I be that good at reproducing the sounds of machines through the instrument of my lips? In any case, I forgot when I was saying, oh, you are wondering what I am doing talking to you uh, in such a manner at the beginning of the episode as opposed to the end. Excellent question. Uh, I think it's just because I really want to open myself up to you this week. Typically, you're going to hear a lot of dumb skits, sketches, however you want to call them. But not this week. This week, I've decided to devote the entire episode to a tale of my life and the trials, the considerable obstacles I've had to overcome on my way to becoming a man that Fortune magazine called a subscriber. What uh, were the formative experiences that uh, I underwent, undergotten, that I undergotten on my way to uh, ascending the ranks of the Soul to Soul fan club? Remember Soul to Soul? They uh, started off, I think, with three people, and then they lost one member, so they just became Soul 2. And then uh, they lost that second member. They were just Soul. And uh, I think it was at that point that uh, they really started to go downhill. Uh, No one wants to listen to one Soul. Uh, At least that's what I keep telling my congregation every week. Uh, Anyway, I've lost the thread here. Uh, yes, formative influences. Well, I'd say the biggest was, of course, the uh, wisdom, the philosophy, the teachings 
of my father, Everell Manco. Everell Manco uh, was known throughout my tiny Wisconsin town of audacity as uh, the friendliest loan shark you'll ever meet. Uh, if you were behind on uh, paying back a loan he'd given you, or on uh, making good on a gambling bet you'd made with him that you promptly lost on, he was always more than happy to uh, gaze upon you as you stood there before him. Uh, with a little twinkle in his eye and a song in his heart, and uh, with a huge, beaming, open grin on his face as he slapped you repeatedly and whispered, You're going to be mine. So that, that, was, that was more or less my father in a, in a nutshell. And his name, if I can recall it, Everell Magasco. Everell Magasco of Audacity, Wisconsin. Uh, a big element of what I am today. And of course, there was my mother. We mustn't uh, give her a short shrift. Uh, she shall get the longest shrift imaginable, which is 28 feet. Look it up in Guinness. Uh, she, of course, served for many, many years as uh, the town nurse and the town doctor and uh, the town taxi driver, uh, often at the same time, uh, which is kind of meant operating out of the back of a van if you had a baby you wanted to uh, give birth to. Not necessarily if the, you know, if the baby was on its way, you just wanted to give birth to it. You were just like, forget it, I want to have this baby, I don't want to go through the pain of uh, waiting three months. So, uh, I want this thing out of me, I want to start raising it, because I'm an impatient businessman who doesn't have a lot of time to develop parenting skills. I just want to get this life underway. And you, she would, by all means, get it right out and uh, bring it into the world. And uh, usually, um, I would be on hand as a, a kind of uh, hand handmaiden, wet nurse, however you want to call it. Uh, I often called myself uh, Captain Agreeable, which my mother was fine with. She wasn't crazy about it, uh, as you can imagine, but. Uh, she was okay with it. So yes, anyway, I would witness this uh, momentous occasion, and uh, often I would see my mother gazing down at the uh, little person that she'd just brought forth, and uh, usually she would gaze down at it with tears in her eyes, and then uh, she would look back up at the mother and say, I can get you $200 for this miracle on the black market. And uh, you'd be surprised how often the mother took her up on this offer. Uh, little did anyone know that uh, the black market was a reference to the tool shed outside where we 
raised a pen of about 230 children that had been ostensibly, quote-unquote, sold on the black market. Oh, how I cherish those memories of romping in the backyard with the 230 children uh, that my mother would periodically feed, bathe, and speak to, usually on uh, holidays. Because look, you're, you're raising a, a crowd of, uh, like a good auditorium-sized crowd of children in your backyard. Um, and, of course, you're working full-time. You're not going to have uh, a ton of opportunities to, uh, you know, play catch with them or, uh, you know, tell them the uh, history of the Boer War. You know, so you, you really got to limit that time to, to holidays and make that time really valuable. If, if anyone takes anything away from this episode, it's that raising 230 kids, you really need to develop your time management skills. Get as much time as you can out of those holidays spent with Gregory, Asha, Bobathan, Bobathan, Clara, Demerol, Fival, Glick, Hamish, Jorgensen, Kilnan, Napkin, Orithin, all of them. Uh, don't bother learning their names, obviously. Because um, they're not really people in the strictest sense. But uh, in any case, keep this in mind. Uh, so th- those are really the, the two main influences on me growing up. Um, and of course, you know, again, it takes a village to raise a child. So certainly the people in my village, literally a village, uh, had a big hand in creating me as a person, uh, shaping my personality. And uh, of course you had uh, Gus, the local barber, who uh, was always ready to uh, listen to um, whatever um, tough anecdotes I had about uh, growing up in poverty and he would just kind of sit there, and uh, of course I couldn't afford to pay for a haircut, so he would just kind of uh, use his uh, two of his fingers as pretend scissors and just kind of clip away. And uh, as a result, I uh, I had like crystal gale length hair. It was pretty much down to my posterior. Uh, by the time I was 12, um, but oh, we had a grand time, Gus and I. Uh, he would just. Uh, tell me stories of uh, growing up Lithuanian, even though he uh, was actually from uh, Romania. Uh, he never really learned the difference. He was kind of Lithuanian, Romania. He kind of... They were more or less the same to him. It's like Russia and Prussia. Um, it's pretty much the same thing. Uh... And I don't mean to offend anyone, but, uh, I mean, let's face it, um, we're all just, uh, people who are going to die very soon, in the next hour, so, you know, big deal. Let's just learn to get along. Anyway, he would tell me stories about growing up, uh, Lithuanian as a young Romanian boy, 
and he would describe uh, the bosoms of uh, various villagers to me. Uh, he uh, would provide a, a very um, elaborate grading system. Um, it was like a shankle-based rating system. I don't know what a shankle is. I'm not sure if he did either, but uh, then, of course, you, you had, uh, like, for instance, Marta Babakov. She had four shankles out of ten, which is better than you think. It's a pretty tough system. Uh, I think the highest anyone ever got was an eight, and uh, she had very powerful forearms, which he uh, thought was very important. Uh, so yeah, he, he definitely kind of colored my view of, uh, of humankind, and uh, I think that's uh, probably explains my marriage to a 800-pound uh, circus wrestler named Marlena. Uh, I love you, Marlena. Don't ever change. And so, who else was there? Well, of course, there were my teachers. My teachers at the tiny farmhouse um, where I would report each day to learn about maths and uh, related subjects. There were three subjects, actually. There was maths, which we called, uh, we called it maths, plural, because uh, we learned a few different maths. There was math, which we often refer to as just kind of regular math. There was uh, lion math. And, uh, of course, there was uh, uh, rollerblade math cheesecake math. Uh, of course, there was Big Pen math. And finally, the most important math of all, cheese math. I had to think about it for a second because uh, it's been a while. And not because I just made it up. Anyway, math, and then of course, the other two, sci the other two subjects we learned about were science, uh, which basically, our scientific study involved just kind of pouring soft drinks into beakers, noting the carbonation, and then uh, pouring it into a sink. Uh, I somehow failed this class five times. Every time we had to look at the carbonation, I would just be looking the other way, and uh, yeah, it's just you either got an A-plus or an F in the class, depending on whether you were looking or not. And I would just always have something else on my mind. And uh, it really cost me. I'm not going to lie. It really cost me. Um, but yeah, in any case, uh, you had maths, as I said, science. And finally, you had literature. Uh, most of the literature we studied was something in the area of uh, Mad Magazine. Uh, you would have a uh, pack of sugar packets. They give you the ingredients. Uh, we would study those. We looked at a lot of uh, uh, Canadian Heritage Minutes, the commercials you'll see. Um, talk about famous moments in Canadian history, uh, like the time uh, basketball was invented by uh, that uh, herdsman in Nova Scotia who uh, needed an excuse to uh, throw something at his son. 
Uh, and of course, his son put the bucket up in front of his face, and in front of his face, I, I mean. And uh, that was how basketball was invented. It was invented out of a moment of uh, bucket-influenced rage. People don't, people don't know that, except me. Uh, in any case. There was that, The Sugar Packets, Mad Magazine, and uh, there were some books. I think uh, a lot of the Kitty Kelly biographies, like the one she, uh, uh, I think there was the one she wrote about, wrote about Tolstoy, and I don't know if you've read the Kitty Kelly biography of Tolstoy, but uh, apparently he engaged in a pretty torrid romance in the 80s with uh, Morgan Fairchild. Uh, that is, uh, again, rare information, but it's the absolute, the always honest truth. Uh, so there, there you go. Uh, I think another one of the major uh, kind of uh, tidbits in that book was uh, Tolstoy's uh, involvement in a lot of pyramid schemes. Uh, he uh, really got screwed over a, a lot uh, by uh, Dostoevsky. It's true. Dostoevsky would uh, sit him down, um, usually interrupting him in the middle of uh, one of his uh, writing sessions, and he would say, Tolstoy, my friend, did you know there is a way that you can become rich simply by giving me money? Uh, and then Tolstoy would say, well, that sounds like uh, a lot of hooey. And Dostoevsky would say, it's not hooey at all. Uh, all you have to do is pay into the system, and then uh, the more you do that, the higher you rise up, and then if you get other people in after you, they're going to be below you, and they're going to be paying you. Uh, so in, in that way, it's kind of like a, it's like a pyramid. And then eventually you get to the top and everyone's paying you. And it really, uh, really works. Uh, I'd look at this Cadillac I bought. And then he would gesture to uh, a wagon. And of course, and of course Tolstoy didn't know what a, a Cadillac was. So he, for all he knew, it might have been just a wheelbarrow. And uh, so he was pretty impressed. And, uh, and then Dostoevsky would say, Well, Tolstoy, maybe you want to talk to Solzhenitsyn. Um or uh, Turgenev. You know, I, I think really, if we all get in on this, we can all make a major killing and we don't have to write these dumb novels about, uh, you know, the uh, sweep of history or whatever other crap we write about. He really, people don't know that about Dostoevsky. He was really down on his own writing. He really would have rather uh, just been cruising around uh, looking for chicks. So, yeah. Anyway, I learned that. Uh, and finally, I guess the other major influence on my life was uh, a, a professor of mine at uh, North Foothill College in uh, Barnslack, Michigan. Uh, professor's name, of course. Uh, I'm sure you all know him. He is uh, uh, an expert, a specialist in the field of uh, downhill technology, and his name was Jeff 
Gake. And of course, Jeff Gake being uh, such a sort of forceful personality, as I'm sure you all know. You've read his books, uh, including It's All Downhill From Here and I Love It. And of course, there was uh, his second book, which didn't do as quite as well, which was called uh, Everyone Get Out of My Face. Mostly written in a drunken stupor, having very little to do with downhill technology, I must say. In any case, uh, being the forceful personality he was, he really got me inspired to uh, take up uh, the cause of uh, downhill technology. Now, what is downhill technology, you're asking? Uh, first of all, you're a moron. Sorry. Uh, second of all, downhill technology is, of course, the uh, advancement of uh, things that make other things go downhill. So that could be sleds. It could be cars. Um, it could be uh, shopping carts. Mainly shopping carts. That's really the main focus of downhill technology. Uh, I mean, there are skis too, but uh, people care, don't care about skiing. Um, so yeah, in any case, uh, that's now the main focus of my life. Downhill technology, it's true. Uh, so if anyone has any questions about uh, how to make things go down, just kind of like shoot downwards. Uh, like if you're at the top of a hill and you're like, okay, how do I get down this hill? Do I just walk? And like, don't, don't ever walk, okay? Don't, you don't walk. You're gonna need a different way of getting downhill. Just give me, give me a call again. My number is uh, 772-818-7848. And, uh, or you can email me at uh, uh, downhillian at mefunk.com, which is my domain name. Don't steal it. And I'd be happy to help you out with your... Uh, downhill queries um yeah so i guess uh you know, the show, wow whoa that show shot by uh we are coming up to the end here uh so i guess with the remaining moments i just want to say thank you for l listening to this infomercial sponsored by the downhill institute of not upwards uh located in uh down upathon bc and uh, tune in next week uh, when regular programming resumes. Uh, we are going to have a special visit from uh, Dr. Payne. And, uh, of course, we're going to hear music from the Bink Miners. And uh, it's going to be a treat. Thank you all. Good night. And please sleep in your cars. Seriously.